At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. This show is called So Very Wrong About Games. It is a board gaming podcast about, dramatic effect, pause, board games. The drama. I am here with my very good friend and co-host, Mark Bigney. How are you today, Mark? I'm very well. I'm just here for that drama. So, we're going to talk about the games we played this week. We're going to talk about some news and why it completely doesn't matter. We're going to talk about our main review, which is Revive. Mark, what did you play this week? Had a good week for party games. Played a whole bunch of just one. The Ludovic Rudy and Bruno Sauté game by Reproduction. But I also got to play again a game I've only played once before. Also a word game, also cooperative by Reproduction, and that is So Clover. And what I like about So Clover is that it challenges you to come up with connections between the two words. It kind of blows up the space. Instead of making one-to-one connections with just one where the additional challenge is trying to pick a a word that other people aren't thinking of, so it's sort of a coordination game in reverse. In So Clover, you have to make connections between two available words, while also trying to hope that the connections that you're making don't also fit other words that you've been dealt, because it's this bizarre setup that you can try to describe verbally, but honestly just sounds confusing. It's like mini code names. It is kind of like a mini... Well, like, at the end of the day, one could one could assert that all of these yes. clue connection games are within striking distance of code names. And to be frank, I don't even think that would be that inaccurate. Uh, so Clover, though, is very flexible in terms of player count. Everybody gets to simultaneously give clues and get clues. Those are two things that I like very much. Whereas code names, you're kind of fixed into a, a, a team situation, and one person has to be the clue giver, and one person and the other people have to be guessing exclusively. Uh, so, so Clover has that advantage. It also has delightful plastic components. Of course, both of these games suffer from the same problem. This is something that is not frequently enough addressed, but I think it's worth addressing because we here at So Very Wrong About Games don't like to just talk about the new hotness. We like to revisit games months, sometimes even years after they've been published. They don't self-destruct. Did you not know that? They have object permanence. You can turn around and ignore them for five whole months and the game is still there. Fake news. When, oh when, is someone going to publish a board game with dry erase markers that will not dry out? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> what I mean, everyone has the same experience. You pull it out, it's like, 
my copy of just one has about two functional markers, and that's being generous, more like one and a half. So Clover as well, you know, you open up the box, like, oh, don't use that marker, that one doesn't work anymore. And I don't want to be the guy who has to carry around other dry erase markers elsewhere. Yeah, it could be a thing. Like, I remember back, you know, when you had the old games club, you'd have, like, pens and pencils and right. dice, and you, now you're going to have to have dry erase markers on it's the true. standby. It's true. And it's one thing for me to have dry erase markers on the standby at my home, but for in cases where it's public gatherings, as were the instances where I play most of my uh, party games nowadays, I don't really have, like, seven, eight people over at my home for party games anymore, such as a bygone era of when I had, what's the word, friends. I I don't want to have to have, like, that go bag of dry erase pens that I put everywhere. On the other hand, it's not like I, I feel like buying replacements and shoving them in the box of just one, because they're going to dry out two anyway. Anyway. This is a very minor first world problem of modern party games, but suffice to say that you have you're spoiled for choice when it comes to excellent word games. I thoroughly enjoy just one. I also thoroughly enjoy So Clover, and uh, So Clover is by Francois Ramey. As I said, it's also by Hippo Production. I I don't have a copy, man. I I feel like our game group needs one. I should chase down a copy, and I was able to come up with I think my masterpiece of of cluing. I had to clue in palace and family and i just put windsors and it worked like magic very nice yeah especially since there was also crown on the other end of of the 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 placard so i had to be very very careful about not getting too close but it worked out well speaking of dry erase markers and party games we also got to play green team wins this is designed by nathan thornton and put out by 20th century games and because we had five we got to introduce two new people to the awesomeness that is green team wins it asks all sorts of interesting, sometimes moral, sometimes silly, sometimes fun questions. Have any of them been moral? I'm asking because I'm trying to remember. Well, when you ask what the best fruit in fruit salad, or what are the worst fruit in okay. fruit salad is. That okay, is let's, let, let's return to this. A, a no, no, seriously. Uh, okay, if let's talk about the game, then we're going to talk about fruit salad. For sure. I want to, because I want to well, talk about fruit salad. We'll talk about fruit salad. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, so so there's three different types of questions. It's either one's called this or that, one is a multiple choice question, and one is fill in the blank. So they'll say something like uh, blank suds, and you have to put in a word, like soap or something else. And whoever has the majority of the answers either gets to go on the green team or stay on the green team. Moving to the green team gets you a point. Staying on the green team gets you two points, and it's just of a return to high school, the cool kids win. Absolutely. So let's talk about fruit salad. Let's talk. So a question that has recurred now twice, and repeat questions aren't too bad if you have new players at the table. If you have the same group all the time, then yeah, coming up against the same question again could be a little bit tricky, but as it is when there are new players, it, it it's still a new question because it's all about the social dynamics. So the question is... Which of the following three are the worst in a fruit salad? All right, let me, let me just right? let me just start with the, the no, 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 no. Why are you pref- because I preferencing tell- is the word fruit salad? If you were to take these fruits separately, Walker, there is Walker. Ba- why are you trying to tip the scales? There is banana. You're tipping the scales. There is melon. Yes, and there is blueberry. Blueberry individually, and they want to know what is the worst one. Yes, if these were taken individually as fruit, melon. Would be the worst. Walker. But in a fruit salad, Walker. everyone knows bananas er, er, go... Everyone. Wow. Bananas go mushy and gross. Walker. No one wants banana in their fruit salad. Are you ready for what I have to say to you? Yes, I'm ready. I just want to... Come, this is from me, all right? From the heart? Walker. Yes. You're talking too much. <laughs> wow. I know. If you feel like you have to preface the, the question that much, you're not doing a great job. I have... Po- Here's the thing. I fully acknowledge... 
that when it comes to this question, I'm in the minority because most people in my experience seem to gravitate towards banana. Let me put a, a different spin on this. No sane human being enjoys melon. Not a one. There's watermelon. It's ha- delicious. Honeydew is Honeydew fantastic. is gross. Cantaloupe is disgusting. Is, is a little Wa- rough, but... <laughs> watermelon, by the way, is not typically presented as melon. I think we can reasonably infer that in this case, I, I melon would, doesn't I, mean I was, watermelon. I was just trying to... You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, watermelon, is, scale there. watermelon and fruit salad, that'd be fine. Not to my taste, but I, I acknowledge it. Nobody enjoys the melon. It is filler at best. But they do eat it. Whereas the banana, no, they don't. Banana gets the plastic fork flick. Okay, you know those little into the ditch. You know those. I disagree. You know those little dole uh, fruit cups. You very frequently see people they eat the pear, they eat the peach, they leave the melon. Oh, they definitely eat the maraschino cherry. That's for damn sure. And, but they don't bother putting banana in it because they know. Because <laughs> no, because it's too expensive and too know. fancy for them. They can't. They can't <laughs> deal with it. Worst case scenario, the banana turns to mush and then makes everything else taste of banana, i.e., delicious. Next week's episode. <laughs> Which fruit is the best? This matters, Walker. Anyway, if you want discussions like this, play Green Team Wins. <laughs> and if you need more dry erase markers, just buy Green Team Wins because it comes with a bucket. That gun. is true. It does come with so many. Oh, so that's many. a great point. All I need to do is... Thanks, Walker. No, yeah, yeah that, that, that's where my just one markers can come from. I'll buy a copy of Green Team Wins. That's great. You're Excellent. So to round out this discussion of party games, I get to play Decrypto again. Now, Decrypto is a source of some controversy in the broader swag community because our early experiences with Decrypto were, shall we say, poisoned by a truly decrepit, nightmarish stereo rules explanation of basically Tweedledee and Tweedledum, neither of whom fully remembered the game, trying to riff off each other. So uh, an utter nightmare experience. But this time I got a very, very clear rules explanation. I will say that the overall round structure of Decrypto remains surprisingly cumbersome. I say the thing, we both write, you say, then I say, and then maybe a token happens. And the, it's it, for, for a game of when you're when you're comparing it in your head, as I do, perhaps unfairly, to things like So Clover and Just One, Decrypto comes off as stodgy and clumsy in execution. All right, I, and I admit it is unreasonable of me to put it on that same perspective. Because Decrypto is not trying to be just one and so clover. It's trying to be more along the lines of, you know, a mashup of code names and Turing Machine, right? A slightly more logical puzzle about making weird inferences with limited information in the most efficient way possible that happens to be a word game. Under that perspective, I have come to appreciate Decrypto a lot more. It is not to my taste as much because, again, Strictly logical puzzles like Turing Machine aren't my preference with such things. And when it comes to making these connections, I actually really like the fact that when you're playing these other word games, you get to make lots of different connections over a rapid time, rather than emerging this web of words trying to hone in on the same set of clues. It is also the case that in Decrypto, there's I, I, I find it very frustrating to, in the attempt to confuse your opponents, end up just confusing your partner, which can happen. Now, granted, that's just part of the game, but I, as I say, I find it I find it rather frustrating. But that's just an interesting aspect of it, though. You have to be sufficiently obtuse as to not give your opponents a leg up, but if you're too obtuse, your partner's going to be uh, way out the window. I tend to, again, for personal background, I tend to resort to cultural references in a vague attempt to do things, for example... In my game of Decrypto, there was Rainbow, and in an attempt to clue to Rainbow, I said Pink Floyd off of their famous Dark Side of the Moon album cover, 
And I only realized after I gave this clue, it's like, wait a minute. Half the time I try to make a music reference, it turns out that the other person's like, who's Pink Floyd? Or something like that. Not that I even listened to much Pink Floyd, to be frank. It's just, I, you know, familiar with the iconic album cover. And I figured that Pink Floyd would be a great way to, to, to throw them off for loop. No, no. They knew exactly what I was on about. So, again, that's on me. I'm not, this is not Decrypto's fault. So, I, I appreciate Decrypto as a design. Uh, Thomas Dagenet Esperance has done a fabulous job. And I can certainly see why it is attracted some people like catnip because you have the social element you have the word connection element but on top of that you have this sort of meaty evolving logic puzzle and so i'm, I'm happy to have it in the rotation it's just not one that i'm going to grab nearly so much as something like just one or code names because i prefer the slightly more loose slightly more forward momentum fluidity of making rapid new connections rather than trying to throw people off the train and making the, these these evolving inferences like I'm studying again for some some kind of standardized test. And just one and codenames, you sort of upend the box and you're already playing as well. Unlike Decrypto, which that is not True. possible. True. Again, there, there are different kinds of games, oh, yes, and it is sure. entirely my fault that I cannot get away from putting them in the same broad category. And it's getting an expansion, so that's good. Yes, it, it already has one expansion uh, the, the, the with lasers. 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 And it's getting the expand alone, which is basically an entire new box with the same rules and the, and the, and new words. And so that's Decrypto by Le Scorpion Masqué. And so for our last light party game, we have Horseless Carriage. <laughs> this is designed by Joran Jorin Dumen and Joris Wersinger. Thank you. Put out by Spotter Spielen. Splatter. 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 It's a splatter game. It's a splatter game. Same people that do give us Food Chain Magnet and others. Antiquity, Roads and Boats, Indonesia, lots of other similar crunchy heavy Euro games. So the the car market has exploded and you're opening up your own car factory and you're given, you can get yourself some parts and the, the market will tell you what the demand is and you have to build your cars to spec. And then five million other things. <laughs> as, as, as a splatter game is. Yes, yes. Okay, so first of all, we didn't complete the game. We were, I think, one round away from terminating. Yes. Because the uh, the game lasts a maximum of seven rounds, but you can rush it. And some of us were rushing it. And uh, ultimately, we spent about three and a half hours with rules explanation to mostly finish the game. So it is significantly longer than the previous game, Food Chain Magnet. And for me, again, this is going to sound an awful lot like the you know some of the caveats that I'm giving for Decrypto. I'm going to have an awful time, awfully hard time judging Horseless Carriage not under the shadow of Food Chain Magnate. And this happens all the time. When a publisher or designer releases their masterwork, their best work so far, even if their follow-up work is real good, it is hard not to be somewhat disappointed. I feel, I, just as a, as, a, as a comparison set, after Matt Gertz released Imperial, the game he released after that was, was Hamburg, which is a perfectly fine Euro game. But in comparison to Imperial, it doesn't look good at all. Similarly, Horseless Carriage is very much in the splatter of... But in terms of market manipulation, in terms of the way the market evolves or fails to evolve, it feels incredibly static and plotting when yeah. compared to Food Chain Magnate. It very much feels as though they want you to make the demand of a car in such a way that only you can fulfill it, much as you did in Food Chain Magnate. You'd advertise for something that nobody else had, and you were the only one that, that could deliver that food or that combination that of food, combination yeah. of food but 
to do that in horseless carriage is such an odd buildup. You have to advance on a certain chart and not only that, probably advance other players to make that particular area of field of part more popular. And then it will slide up into, but in doing that, you've made it possible for someone else to build those parts because there's no possible way you're going to get that up there on your own in order to get it up there. Maybe possible, probably not. But even then, there are so many other ways for that the other players can get those parts anyway, even without, you know, being on that track. There's a certain thing to do with an engineering track. And if you're first, you could just build whatever part anyone else has. So I'm just not sure. This is with a single play. Not sure what they wanted you to do. Just one more. Just because it was so evident in Food Chain Magnet. You put out this weird advertising. It flows across this thing. It introduces, you know, uh, beer to the whole market and only you have access to beer. It was a single action that gave you that, you know, advantage and you could utilize it for a turn and then somebody else would do something else. But it was clear and you could do something about it immediately. So part of it is just about the satisfaction of the player in terms of what you're able to execute. And again, comparing it to Food Chain Magnate, I am the only one who produces pizza in enough volume. So once all these other people sell their cheap pizzas, I'm the only one left, and these people are still hungry, and I'm going to make them pay so much more. Or, and that's just how dynamic Food Chain Magnet is, I'm going to get to the market first and sell all my cheap pizza, and then nobody's going to be around left to want the expensive pizza, or some combination of, of the above, right? And it's constantly fluctuating. In the context of horseless carriage, you have some of that. You have, I'm going to make sure that the market values say speed in the automotive automobiles, and I make the fastest cars on the market. And my reward for this is instead of selling my cars for three bucks, I sell my cars for four. Now, maybe that's the margin by which you win. Maybe that's what makes you triumphant, but it is not as satisfying or as appealing as what you get to do in terms of pulling the levers in other kinds of economic games. And it doesn't feel like it's worth the effort. There was a couple turns in particular where somebody was just earning lots more money than any any of us, but it just felt so unsatisfying. It's just because he'd nudged a track a little bit higher and he just so happened to have put his component in a slightly different sector of the market. On that topic... The, the nightmare part. The obviously. nightmare part. So, uh, the word fiddly is thrown about a lot. It means different things to different people. When you play a splatter game, you already know you're going to be manipulating lots of different chets and lots of different pieces, and I'm okay with that. Right, I want. I love the game Antiquity, for example. And in a game of Antiquity, frequently what you're doing is on a given move of which you make many, you're gonna be taking eight small chits and putting them in various places, and then eight small discs and putting them in various places, and then that's your move, uh, in reverse order. I don't even know how to begin to describe these nightmares. I had a nightmare about them. So they were this... they were strangling me at the same time. I couldn't extricate them. It was terrible. There's this giant grid that represents the market in an abstract unsatisfying way and then you're going to be populating it with a bunch of wooden cars trucks and speed cars sports cars sports cars we're not done yet now we're going to be populating it with these little tiny chits that sort of represent the ongoing demand so they're going to be supplying more of these cars every turn and so far i'm okay true by itself this would be fine albeit again somewhat unsatisfying as opposed to the lovely representation of a neighborhood in food chain magnet of all these houses that had very specific demands. But anyway, moving on. But now you're going to be putting out these plastic squares over top of all this stuff. These frames. These frames that on a single touch move quite a bit because they're so light and flimsy. So they're going to be 
sliding everything everywhere. And everyone's going to be putting one at first. One at first. Even that's bad enough. But but two or three later on. And they get get bigger and they start overlapping more and more and more. And then at the end of every round, it was so bad that by – I don't know if this was round three or four. I was just about to take my turn selling cars – and this was actually a good turn for me. I was I was selling cars on my terms. I was selling trucks on my terms. I was just about to put down my market, and I uh, my my they represent dealerships. They represent vehicle dealerships. I was just about to put it on the board, and I almost felt sick to my stomach. I'm not exaggerating because I knew that we were only halfway through this process, and at the end of it, we would have to extricate all these things and give them back to their owners without disturbing what was underneath. Yeah, it wouldn't be so bad like most games. You put it out, and it's on the map, and you're done. Sure, but these are things that you put out and take off and you have to take them off in the same order because you're not going to be lifting them all off at the right. same time. And it's not visually apparent. It's just anyway. Yeah. I, like I say, this is on top of the fact that you're manipulating a lot of components as it is. And they've abstracted away the need to deal with paper money. Some people hate paper money and that's a reason to hate a lot of other splatter games in terms of component manipulation. But anyway, on top of all that, having, having gotten all that negative out, out of the way, the key gameplay element of Horseless Carriage to me is less about the market manipulation, although though there's that. It's building your factory and setting up your factory so that you have a dealership and a main line and parts that can feed the main line in the right way so that, you know, you've invented, you've decided to innovate in the car market. It's like you're, you're the first car maker to put doors on your cars. And so, okay, I need to have the, I need to have the element that produces the doors and I have to make sure that the doors get to the main line in the right way. That part, despite the fact that it's a spatial puzzle, I thought was kind of interesting, and I enjoyed that part. Granted, it's all multiplayer solitaire, because during the industry phase, everyone just looks down and starts yeah. staring at their puzzle. No, that's a nightmare for me. Like, Oh, you didn't enjoy it? Well, uh, that me doing it is fine, knowing that everybody else is either, and I don't think they're cheating, or that they get advantage. Right, you do get bothered at the thought that other people are not doing it properly yeah, without supervision. because it's the game. Right. If they're not doing it right, then we're not playing the game right. Sure, sure. That's fair, and there were some mistakes. I mean, it's it's strange because on paper the restrictions are very simple and can be expressed very simply, and indeed in the rulebook they are. But in practice, people tend to find them very confusing, and so you have to constantly repeat the same the same criteria. I was not surprised by that. Now, all of this having been said, despite the fact that I'm disappointed because it's not food chain magnate, <laughs> I nonetheless have the strong consciousness that it's not trying to be food chain magnate necessarily, and I am curious to try it again. Especially since, like every other Splatter game, an early mistake can set you back very, very prominently. I just so happened to build my factory as an example, since that my first dealership, which actually sold both cars and trucks, and the fact that I could sell trucks and nobody else was into trucks was pretty much my only competitive advantage in the entire game. I, I built it cleverly in such a way such that that dealership could never, ever advertise. And that was a pain for me for every turn thereafter. And it just, I, I just couldn't, there was no way for me to fix it. And it was literally a turn mistake I made on turn one. That is a hallmark of many a splatter game. <laughs> so I would be interested in trying it again. I, I don't know what the right player count is. It's tricky. Yeah, because it has to be at least three. It has to be at least three. Otherwise, the patent system just doesn't work. But by the same token, you're adding more people, and that just complicates the market more in a way that's not necessarily interesting, just cumbersome. It takes up a lot of space. Yeah, it's also a table hog, yes. But I am definitely wanting to try it again. Well, I'm glad you're down to try it again. It was... It was not an abortive play like there wasn't any forward momentum, right? We knew what we were doing mostly. A couple of niggling rules that were very, very arbitrary that ran that people ran afoul of, like every time you sell, you can only sell from one tiny little square. It's like, but my dealership covers several squares. It's like, no, 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 only one square at a time. And that's not particularly satisfying, but 
Anyway, as I say, we, we are harping on a lot of the negatives. It has a lot of the quality splatter elements in that a novel representation of supply and demand, a novel implementation of spatial puzzles, a nominal, uh, a, a, a novel element of very strong player order necessity and ways to control that, and uh, a fascinating element of tile placement. So all of those things were very interesting, and I'm looking forward to trying it again. I just... I wish it had some a little bit more of the dynamism, a little bit more, and I wish it were a little bit more satisfying to execute things well, rather than knowing that your excellent execution got you a marginal dollar or two. Now, just quickly going over the, the tile placement, because there are four different categories of sort of parts, and at the beginning of the game, two are going to be the the relevant ones first and probably most relevant throughout the whole game. They're probably, you know, they're going to go in and out, but those two first ones have a high chance of being in the rotation more than others. But maybe, but then the correspondence between type of part and attribute becomes disentangled as the game progresses in an interesting way, but go on. True. I'm, that's not the majority, majority of my port. Right, right, right. Is, yeah. Is, uh, do you, do you think that you're going to be building your factory the same almost every time? Because the difference in part shapes isn't huge. So you're going to realize that you're, you know, you have to have your, your car in one spot, your dealership in another and, and leaving room in certain areas. And you're going to have that down from there on. And therefore that, that sort of, that space of being inventive is going to disappear. No, I don't think so for two reasons. Number one. I decided very early on to focus on selling cheap cars and trucks, and that de that determined a lot of my early placements. Somebody else at the table decided early on to focus on sports cars to the exclusion of everything else, and that determined a lot of his placement. You and another player at the table decided to focus on mid-range automobiles, and that determined a lot of your placement. And on top of that... The features that were initially in demand are randomly determined, and one of them was speed, meaning that we had to start with engines. And engines disappeared almost immediately, and they are huge on your factory board. If instead the early demand had been, say, design and safety, our early factory boards would have looked very different, and it would have encouraged other people to start their second dealership sooner, or start their second mainline sooner, or any number of other things. It's odd that we can sell cars without engines, but, you know, whatever. <laughs> yeah. I was, I, I mean, I was a little hopeful that the theme was going to be a little bit more present, but I, I realized that was a pipe dream because the game in part is about the very early days of the horseless carriage when nobody knew what it was going to look like, you know, when the throttle was the wheel and the, <laughs> and Bra brakes were optional, brakes were optional and steering was done by a rod and things like that. And no windshields and no doors. And the only reason to have a second onboard seat was for your bring-along mechanic and things. Anyway, you don't get a whole lot of that in the actual playing. It's just a... Which is weird, because they could have, with a little more text, they could have sold that a little bit more. Just on these large tiles, where it's your your, your engine part just, uh, manufacturing center, you're just going to put engine. But on the back, they could have had all sorts of interesting history to It's true. It's true. I kind of wish they had. And that is Horseless Carriage. Got to play a game of Mosaic, a story of civilization. This has been quite a divisive game amongst the So Very Wrong About Games crowd. We still continue to enjoy it. I got to introduce it to a new player, uh, specifically one of the Louis, and we had a great time, despite the fact that the game of Mosaic lasted significantly longer than any game we'd ever had. Now, the end game of Mosaic is determined in part by where a card is going to be randomly shuffled in a variety of decks and how much people focus on those decks. So... Sometimes it's going to be longer than in others. True. Well, to be, I think 
I don't think this is a bad call. I think specifically it'll be when is the final card going to come out of the technology deck? Because all the other ones will come up and then generally because of the technology deck being so thick, it will be the one that usually. And it's in the bottom third as opposed to the bottom half. Just so. Well, we had a game where the population deck was hit hard and frequently by a number of players. Somebody ended with a population of 30, which is wild. Uh, People were building a lot, and so the building card came up soon. People were not buying many technologies at all. People were busy doing a lot of other things. And as a consequence, we had the other game end condition. And so uh, when I say that this is the longest game of Mosaic I'd ever seen, I'm saying it was two and a half hours, which is not to say we weren't there for three, four hours, and nobody felt the time last at all. It was like, oh, it's been that long. Not as opposed to, guys, come on, could we could we get this over with? And I continue to enjoy Mosaic. I find myself doing different things. I find myself approaching the same problems with slightly different outlooks just based on the starting technologies and the starting board that I have. This time I went heavy, heavy, heavy into manufacturing cities and I produced lots and lots and lots of refined goods and did not focus nearly so much on, as I say, the technology board or the uh, technology cards that, that were available. And I find that with better framing, with uh, slightly better teaching, knowing what to expect in a game of Mosaic, we're able to better to emphasize people, pay attention to who has four or five of a given icon, because six is a big threshold that will cause people to drown in points. And as a consequence, everyone, even the new player, knew to keep an eye on things, and everyone was was, was on top of it. I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed Mosaic, A Story of Civilization. Glenn Drover's output in the past has been somewhat uneven, but I think he's definitely on, uh, hit a high point on Mosaic, a more abstracted take on Civilization games, but to my mind, more interactive than a lot of other tableau builders where you're just gathering icons. And so just to recap everything we've been saying over the course of the past few months about a Mosaic, it was, it was a grand time. This is a review copy we got from the publisher, published by Forbidden Games last year. Mosaic, A Story of Civilization. We got Planet Unknown to the table again. Planet Unknown is a Tetromedo game in very much the ilk of a New York Zoo or a uh, very much like a Isle of Cats. You are... No love for Baron Park. Baron Park just seems to have escaped your memory with no enthusiasm whatsoever. I will not support this Baron Park erasure. Well, Baron Park is less about covering certain symbols as opposed to covering them when you need them and just and expanding. We're splitting quickly. hairs. It's a Tetromino game where you cover stuff. Walker. It, all Come right, on. All right. All right. <laughs> I just wanted to say. Also Baron, like Baron Park. I just, I just wanted to say Baron Park erasure. That's what I wanted oh, to say. I see it. So, but in this one, you are, I guess, terraforming a planet. You also have a, a player board that you're moving up all these different tracks to get benefit bonuses and benefits there as well. So it's sort of like a, you know, back and forth sort of combination going on between your map and your player board. This game played out a little differently than other games just because... That's saying something, yes. Because we use both uh, fancy boards and fancy player boards <laughs> and... Fancy planets. Fancy planets. Someone had a fancy planet where they had to only have certain shapes in certain areas. And because they couldn't keep that up, the game ended, I don't want to say prematurely, but we were close to the end anyway, but still. I don't know about close to the end. It we was very premature. 75 to 50%. Yeah. It, it was it was surprising. I came away with the impression, so we very much enjoy Planet Unknown. It's hard to dislike polyomino games. And I do like the additional challenge of being pulled in various directions by wanting to race up tracks, but at the same notion wanting to cover more real estate and not knowing what to take. And that part I do enjoy. And it's got a Lazy Susan 
very hard to dislike that part. But I came away with a very negative impression of the custom planets. We had been playing with the custom player boards, the custom faction powers for a while now, and they seem mostly okay. But the different planets, especially in conjunction with the different corporation boards, don't seem to produce the kind of gameplay experience I would like. For one thing, uh, sometimes they're a little graphically unclear. That was definitely the experience with your player board, for example. And on top of that, they seem to interact with specific faction powers in ways that are potentially deeply unsatisfying. And facially, they don't seem very balanced. Some of them seem to give you a tremendous advantage and some serious uh, downsides, and others on the face of it just seem to give you downsides. And so I'm not exactly sure... What's going on there? Kickstarter stretch goals. (laughs) Probably. So I don't think I'll be playing with those again unless someone wants a handicap, in which case I guess tell them to play with the generic corporation board and one of the more difficult player player boards, I guess. But even then, if it's the player board in in, in question that makes you unable to place tiles really easily, if that leads to a precipitous endgame, I don't know if that's great for new players at the table either. So... That's Planet Unknown, designed by Ryan Lambert, Adam Rayberg, and published by Adam Apples Games. Played another game of Capital X2 Generations. Jealous. This is by Isla Svensson and Christian Amonsby Osby. These are names that will come up again. Did a random setup power this time, and I really appreciated that how uh, even the random powers can lead to good combinations. Now, there's no- notional sets. There are four suits in the game. And it's really hard to describe what kind of game it is. We actually had this discussion afterwards with Warmboy. It's like, what would you call that? It's like, well, I introduced it as a kind of sort of tableau building, drafty kind of special powers thing with push your luck elements. And that seems to be, even having reviewed the game fully a few, <laughs> a few months ago, I don't know of a snappy way to put it. But you are building a tableau, kind of. You are pushing your luck, definitely. And there are also definitely special powers, and you do draft your hand, so... There you go. Anyway, there are four different factions, each with a different special power. You can have the sort of stock setups where everyone has the A, the B, the C, or the D. That's where the Generations version comes in. There's also Capital X2 Pocket, which only has the A, the B, and the C. Uh, there are also expansions, which we haven't even opened yet. <laughs> that's that's telling how much variety there is in the base game. We love Capital X2, and we've been playing it a lot off and on. But we still haven't opened up any of the expansions, which is wild. Anyway, we had a setup whereby one of the special powers introduced an entire new deck of cards and a fifth suit to the game, and one of the other special powers was just take another turn. And so it was it was it was nice. That level of asymmetry, even in terms of rules complexity, it never got very complicated. The fifth suit is not particularly burdensome in terms of information, but it's definitely more in-depth and involved than take another turn after this one. So it was nice just to see that level of variety. It was also the only yellow power that doesn't deal with the coins, which I found surprising. I don't remember having played with the C before, but I thought I'd played all the stock combinations. I guess I was mistaken. Anyway, great time had by all. It, it, despite the fact that it, it it's hard to describe, it is not as daunting rules-wise as you might expect, and it's very quick and satisfying. Capital X2 Generations. We got to play Pew Pew Bookie Book again. I thought it was Bookie Bookie Pew Pew. Well, it's Wizards of the Grimoire. So right. It's Wizards first, which is the Pew Pew, and okay. then Grimoire, which is Bookie Book. So okay, I fair, okay thank keep, you. I thought we'd keep the order. Oh, well, tell me first. I'm sorry. Oh, well, now I know. So this is a fantastic card game, which uh, teaches very easily. There are some component issues. <laughs> but other than uh, that, this is designed Well, by- let, let's be clear. 
having talked so long about horseless carriage, we're not talking on the level yeah, of that. No. Specifically, there are two decks of cards that are differentiated only by a color, and so we constantly forget which deck is which. That's yes. it. Because they both have the exact same, you know, uh, logo, logo and text and on the back. Yes. Back, yes. So this is designed by Cole Banting and Joe Banting. Banning. Banning. Cole, Cole Banning and Joe Banning. Uh, published by Grimoire Games. And one of them really needs to go to the Board Game Geek page and credit their artists because there's still no artist's credit Oof. On, on this game. So what you're doing in this game, you have a tableau of 10 cards in which you're building your own personal tableau of spells. And then you get to cast them in whatever order you like. But you're going to be putting the casting power on top of the cards and it's slowly going to tick off before you're going to be able to use that spell again. And you're adding spells and you're creating these very interesting combos with a very light, quick rule set. It is a race to build an engine that will score points slash destroy your opponent faster than theirs will destroy yours. And it's sufficiently quick and engaging. I was initially worried, playing the first time playing Wizards of the Grimoire, that it really looks like you end up drafting your first six spells, and then you never get any new spells after that. That's fine. Honestly, there's enough variety in terms of the spells that... You can pivot a little bit if you want to. Like, you have the opportunity to take new spells, but I was never particularly inclined to. Basically, you establish an engine and pump it as fast as you can. It's kind of like a little bit like Furnace, actually. It reminds me of Furnace in that Furnace was a very stripped-down auction build-your-engine-type uh, game uh, where where most of the, complex, uh, the interesting complexity was in terms of the bidding system. Running your engine was relatively straightforward. Whereas Wizards of the Grimoire... Getting the cards is straightforward. It's just a simple draft. And then it's running your engine, which is a little bit more interesting because there are spells that do all kinds of things. Spells that give you more energy, spells that increase or decrease the cooldown of various spells, spells that interact with those spells. There are some defensive spells, but mostly you're just blasting your opponent's face off. Those are the least interesting ones. You get the spells that blast your opponent's face off, and then you might want to get other spells that manipulate the way in which you cast that particular spell or make it... Anyway, there's tons of different unique effects in Wizards of the Grimoire, all of them are relatively simple. We never had any sort of weird interactive fact questions. Everything was transparently obvious, which is a credit to this many unique effects. And it's continued to be a bit of a surprise delight. This was a review copy we got from the publisher, and we came into it with no expectations whatsoever. And it's been great. Pew, pew, bookie book. Played the new version of Raw. So Raw is uh, arguably one of the greatest pure auction games of all time, designed by Reiner Knizia in the late 90s. And this is a new edition published this year by 25th Century Games after a successful game project. Now, I had thought that I had pledged for this edition, but it turns out I had a rare moment of, shall we say, restraint, and I did not. So I was very glad to be able to play a Simi's copy. A Simi got the full deluxe copy, and uh, deluxe it is. This is, after all, the same team that put out the new edition of Tutankhamun, and I would remind you that in the edition of Tutankhamun, it had not one but two unnecessary mini neoprene mats just as an area where tiles could be held. The 25th Century Games edition of Raw has, for example, an unnecessary screen-printed wooden figure, because you don't just have one Raw piece, which is about as big as the start player marker in the deluxe edition of Mosaic History of Civilization, which is to say, vastly bigger than it has, it's like six or seven inches tall, for crying out loud. The Raw is almost that big in 25th Century Games. But in in defense, the one in Raw is actually probably used as the one in Mosaic, (laughs) where it is not used. Absolutely. No, no. Uh, 
look, having a visually prominent Raw figure is definitely a must. I don't think, though, any of the previous editions of Raw, with the possible exception of the Wind River edition, which just had a standee, uh, but the older ones, I have the Uberplay edition. The Uberplay edition of Raw was heretofore, I think, unambiguously the best version of Raw, by virtue of the fact that you still had a chunky big Raw figure that was only, like, four inches, so necessarily insufficient, and also larger tiles than the original Alia edition. It also has two player aids on the board. I'll come back to this. Anyway, going back to the excesses of the 25th century edition, there's not one raw figure, there's two. There's the raw figure you use to call auctions, and then there's the raw figure that follows on a track to get to the end of the round. But, you might be thinking, but Mark, there are also the tiles that indicate when the round is going to end. Just so, what you do is you pull the tile, you put the tile on the track, and then you move the unnecessary figure to where the new tile is. Of course you do. Crowdfunding. Anyway... <laughs> Here, here is my objection to the 25th century edition, and this isn't so much a beef about the 25th century edition as about is is about modern crowdfunding. Would I like a large lacquer screen printed raw figure? Maybe. Would I like thicker lacquered raw tiles? Sure. Do I need a second raw figure? No. Do I need metal scoring tokens? No. There's a whole bunch of other stuff. It used to be the case, back before crowdfunding, some publishers, some, and still some now after crowdfunding, that would think and say, okay, we have enough room to bling out one component. What are we going to do? And they would do that thing. Now, not so much. I would give it as, a, as another modern analog, Imperial Spells in Steam. And I think they did it just right. Imperial Spells in Steam is a game, if you recall. Sprawling components, but they're all cardboard, with the exception of, you know, some, some of those uh, plastic mana chit, uh, mana crystals that you see in a bunch of games. But also, they have neat little plastic trains. They said, if we're going to have one fancy component in the base game, what's it going to be? Little fancy trains. Good job, guys. And then, if you want to buy other stuff, like the ridiculous... Uh, uh, semi-painted resource markers that go on the board. If you want thick cardboard corporation boards instead of thin ones, you can pay extra for that. That is the approach that I favor. But nowhere is there going to be uh, the retail edition of the 21st century games where they said, the tiles really matter. We'll make the tiles thick and great. Everything else will make cardboard. Nope. <laughs> it's all or nothing. All bling. Yeah, all bling or no bling. That's just a minor complaint about the state of the market. 25th Century Games is by no means unique in this. So, was it visually appealing? Yes. Was it fully functional? Yes. Is it as more functional as some of the defenders have made it out to be? No, because I think the degree to which Raw is daunting is exaggerated when you have the scoring on the board. When you have the scoring conditions on the board... Everything is fine. Sometimes you have a little bit of difficulty remembering which things goes, go away at the end of every epoch and which things don't. Again, the Uberplay edition has a little marker on the tile as to things that stick around, so that's clear. In the 25th Century Games edition, your player aid, your player board is a, is a column, and things that disappear every round go on the right side of the column, and things that don't disappear at the end of uh, every epoch stick around on the left side of the column. That's clever, that's good design, my hat's off to you. One thing, though, that is a step back from almost all previous editions of Raw, the Alia version had this, the Wind River edition had this, the Uberlay edition certainly had this, you need to know the distribution of tiles in the bag. 
You have to go to the rule book to find that out in the case of the 25th Century Games Edition. So that's that. That is one thing. It's a mi- very minor quibble in a very lovely edition. I am very glad that Raw is back in print. I definitely think that this edition, in whatever version, whether it's the incredibly deluxified or not version, is better than the Wind River version. Both, I think, in terms of aesthetics and usability. So I think that's great. Am I disappointed that I don't have this edition? Eh, not as much as I thought I might be. I am very, very happy to still have my Overplay edition. It's fine. I don't know if, uh, you know, head-to-head, I don't know which one I'd classify as more visually appealing. In terms of component quality, the 25th Century edition uh, Games Edition definitely triumphs. But as far as the overall aesthetics, I'm not sure. It's six of one half as the other, I think. And I do wish that the information presentation had been a little bit more comprehensive. So now I'm in a position where in terms of usability, I'd give a slight nod to 25th century games, but I am glad that I can have my perhaps slightly less usable, but more information comprehensive Uberplay edition. Long story short, if you haven't played Raw, you should go play Raw. Raw is brilliant. It's the best auction game. It's the best push your luck game. What do you want? Raw. Raw. Lastly from me, we got to play a nice five-player game of Tiny Turbo Cars. This is designed by everyone and published by Horrible <laughs> Guild. Everyone? Me? You? The listeners? I think so. If you go okay. far enough down the designer list, I'm sure we'll find our names there somewhere. I don't remember designing it. So this is a game that comes with a very unique uh, controller. If you remember those little pitcher games you had as a child where you slide around all the little squares inside a plastic tray. Yeah, the sliding tile puzzles. And you have to make the pitcher whole. This is what you're doing to program your car. You, it is, you're only going to use the middle two rows when you're done, but you're sliding frantically around to, to turn and go backwards or shoot missiles or jump or do all sorts of different things, recharge your batteries because you're, you're playing as a little RC car. And then you want to grab a player marker before you get to the last, you don't want to be the last person because you're going to lose some batteries that you don't want to, and you don't want to be mocked by the other players for being last. Is, okay, let me ask. Does it say in the rulebook that you're supposed to laugh at the last player, or was that an addition that you uh, made? That's what I made. Okay. I just wanted to make absolutely sure. Because we're going to laugh anyway. I just want to make people not feel so guilty when they laughed. At no, them. I respect that. That's because you're a good host and you're a kind and caring man. I just wanted to know if they had put that in the rulebook. Oh, gotcha. But, yeah. So... Like I said, you're playing a little RC car, so you're doing all sorts of interesting things like deking out magazines and, and hitting the, the crayon turbos and, and hitting, you know, splashes out of the sink and zooming through bathrooms and bedrooms and all sorts of interesting stuff. I continually enjoy tiny turbo cars, but like you're probably going to, uh, I'll just let you point it out instead of taking uh No, no, taking, go ahead. What What is it you think that I was going to say? Well, I think we're going to talk about how... Because there are a lot of special powers. I want to say so much special powers as uh, unique. Everyone gets to play their own sort of character. And some of them seem much more useful than others, like where their ability happens every turn, usually no matter what, where others are very situational and might not even come up at all. Yeah. Uh, that, that also applies to my criticism of the general notion of offense. One of the core actions is to fire a missile. And in both games that I played, a missile has been successfully deployed once across all turns. This isn't necessarily a knock against the game. It's just that both the offense, not that the game needs it necessarily, and the special powers uh, tend to be very situational and seldom deployed, which undermines the wacky zaniness. I mean, I'd like it if more wild things were happening because the core of Tiny Turbo Cars is 
amazing. It's almost perfectly calibrated in terms of its damage system and how difficult terrain works. So often in games of the silk, Gaslands does this perfectly too. So often in games of the silk, oh no, I ran head headlong into something. I'm boned forever. Or, oh, I got shot up a whole bunch of times. I'm just going to be rebuilding forever. No, 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 no. Always forward momentum, very simple system. You don't skip a turn, you just skip a subset of your turn whenever you get blasted to smithereens, and it works out great. The balance of risk and reward, I think, is damn near perfect. The time pressure to make suboptimal decisions is calibrated, I think, almost perfectly. It's wonderfully done. The catch-up mechanism is great without, without feeling like too much of a rubber band, although sometimes it actually works out to be, but that's fine. I just wish that the powers and the offense just triggered more often because it would be more fun that way. That's my only salient criticism of Tiny Turbo Cars. I, for a satisficer like me, who's willing to be under time pressure, like, ah, this looks good enough. I don't know what's going to happen. And then just revel and see what the results are. It's great. It's lovely fun. And it's just so much simpler and cleaner and maintains forward momentum so much better than comparable games like Robo Rally or other secret programming games. It's really well done. Well, next time we open the box, we should look at there, there's some sideboards that you can lay on top of the map boards. You make this linear track out of five large boards, but it also comes a stack of smaller boards that you sort of just sort of overlay on top. And I'm wondering if that sort of shrinks in, sort of oh. brings smaller tunnels in so it's going to funnel the cars in tighter sure so maybe the missiles will do something sure let's take a look at them next time i'd be i'd be very curious to see that and we'll see what they actually do because it was yet another module that we haven't tried yet so frequently games of this ilk they present themselves as wacky and zany with a high toy factor and either the complexity itself or the general dynamism of the rules lead to a bit of a slog to tedium, it's either too long or too complicated. No, Tiny Turbo Cars, it's really, really well calibrated. And this is only my second play. I'm really looking forward to playing it more. This is designed by Kamar Hawk, Alessandro Manuini, Jonathan Panada, Laura Severino, Julia Tamagni, and again, possibly the remaining population of humanity. You were right, Walker. Exactly. <laughs> and that is Tiny Turbo Cars. Finally, for me, I got to play Blazon. Blazon is designed by David Conklin and also published by 25th Century Games after crowdfunding. This is a Kickstarter that just recently fulfilled. Yes, it's a recently fulfilled Kickstarter. And you can tell that it's a recently fulfilled Kickstarter because unlike the components in Raw, where the giant honking Raw figure is really salient and is manipulated all the time, Blazon comes with these five very large wooden representations of animals like you might see in a coat of arms. You know, the lion rampant or the griffin, whatever, or the, the bunny recumbent, or the... The boar. The, the dragon contemplatant, or whatever, or yes. the boar, exactly. Because Blazon is a drafting game, a card... Well, it's not even a drafting game. It's a, it's a card-drawing game about building a coat of arms. And I saw the pictures. I saw these figures, and I thought, oh, great. We're going to have to assemble some kind of puzzle. And it's like, oh, I've completed the lion rampant puzzle. I can put the lion right in the middle of my... No, no. No, that's not what happens. Here's what happens, Walker. The first player to crack a multiple of 10 in terms of their score gets one of the big wooden animals. Which one? Doesn't matter. They're all the same. The wooden animal is worth two points at the end of the game. That's boring enough. Here's the kick in the teeth. Every other player gets a little quill, which is worth one point at the end of the game, or can be cashed in to basically give you a double turn, more or less. So... <laughs> it's basically a catch-up mechanism in disguise with a large toy 
as a, like a consolation prize for the sucker who actually got there first. Now, I... <laughs> it's hard to explain how I rationally... Maybe I didn't do it rationally at all, but it's hard to explain how I rationally found this so offensive. <laughs> it was like, I am being insulted by this large piece that is clearly very much like the start player marker race, part of the excesses of crowdfunding. The extent to which this could have been a two-point chit, a little chit that said two on it, massive. 100%. There's no reason for these things to exist. It was so ridiculous. Anyway, setting that aside with difficulty, the gameplay itself is very procedural and not particularly engaging. You draw these cards and you are trying to fulfill recipes that are at the top of uh, the top of the board. It's like you need a griffin, a splot of paint like this, and a pink triangle. It's like, okay, well, I'll play my pink triangle, uh, then I'll try to find this, and it's like, here's my griffin. Boom. So you hang on to these giant wooden things for the rest of the game. So what happened was I got to 10 points before any other player got to 10 points. Okay. There are these five very large wooden animals. I take one of these wooden animals, and it just sits there, and it does nothing until the end of the game when I cash it in for two points. Can... <laughs> I just like just like off the top of my head because they have not given each of these animals a very minor special ability that that made them worth not I don't want to say worth something but like set them aside from, apart from each other and no. gave you a reason to choose one over the other. Well, you you choose the boar over the dragon if you want a boar rather than a dragon. Oh my god. <laughs> Yeah, so, I mean, at the end of the day, it was just a very, very rote, standard, play the the four-point card for the four points, try to get the arrangements of card for the recipe before other people do. Oh, I got seven points because I got there first. Uh, we, I found it very forgettable. I, I, it wasn't painful. Other than the stupidity of these incredibly overdone animals, I didn't really find anything offensive in Blazon, but uh, I'll never play it again. That was Blazon! It's great that ExpressVPN protects your privacy and security online, but you can also use ExpressVPN to unlock movies and shows that are only available in other countries. It's so simple, even a gibbon could do it. ExpressVPN lets you control where you want sites to think you're located. You can choose from over 100 different countries. I've been using ExpressVPN to check out Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance on South Korean Netflix, Friends and the American version of The Office on UK Netflix, Back to Canada for Sound of Metal, and Luxuriating in the One and Only Tim Riggins with US Netflix and Friday Night Lights. But it's not just Netflix. ExpressVPN works with any streaming service. Hulu, BBC iPlayer, YouTube, you name it. There are hundreds of VPNs out there, but the reason I love ExpressVPN is because it is so fast and unobtrusive. It also works on all your devices. Phones, media consoles, smart TVs, and more. So if you want to get access to hundreds of new shows, use my link right now, expressvpn.com slash sowronggames, and you can get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. That's expressvpn.com slash so wrong games. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, Visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? 
That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M. Com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. And now on to the news and why it doesn't matter. Just a quick reminder, if you want ad-free versions of So Very Wrong About Games, you can go to patreon.com slash swag, S-V-W-A-G. You can get ad-free versions of our episodes for as little as $3 a month. Ad-free versions do exist. Mark, so the rights of Dogs of War have reverted to Palomori, and he's expressed interest in wanting to reprint it. He wants to know who wants this done so he can, you know, figure out how mu- how big the demand is. We love Dogs of War. It'd be interesting to see if it gets a complete retheme or just, you know, more of the same. Bigger hats, even? I think bigger hats are in order. I don't know about that. Could they, Could bigger hats be sustained? <laughs> Some neck set, neck exercises are definitely in the future, but I think they could do it. Yeah, Dogs of War is great. It's a it's it's a shame that it hasn't been in print. A two player ish version called Blitzkrieg World War Two in twenty minutes, designed by Paolo Mori, is awfully close. But the multiplayer original uh, really should be back in circulation. Currently ongoing, and at the time of this recording, ongoing for another few days is the Golden Geek Awards on Board Game Geek. We sadly are criminally ineligible for podcast of the year, nor is any other pod boy eligible for podcast of the year. But uh, we do think that it is important for you to go out and support the podcasts that you enjoy. And if for some crazy reason you enjoy a podcast that is not ours, absolutely in all seriousness, please do support the creators of things that you love. And in terms of the podcast, especially uh, if you support a board game designer that you love, you can usually just, you know, buy their games and that's a form of support. But (laughs) It is an honor just being nominated, so please do go out and support the podcast that you enjoy. And, of course, do go out and vote for the games that you enjoy as well. But speaking on behalf of podcasters, it is a tremendous thrill to be able to be honored in such a way. And once again, we are deeply, deeply grateful to all the people two years ago who voted us into the Golden Geeks. And we're still very, very proud and humbled by the fact that people gave us that support. So please do go forward and support the people that you think are worthwhile. So, Mark, we're in luck. Going to be some great movies coming out because Uh-oh. Tricarion and Anachrony, the film rights have been sold. What to the same studio? Really? Produ- yeah, producing the Terraforming Mars movie. So we're going to get some <sighs> some quality magic. Those are three very different properties and, that have and, very different approaches and to narrative. Time traveling wow. and and terraforming. It's going to be great. What a great world we live in. So I can definitely see how Tricarian could be made into a good movie. I have no difficulty seeing how Anachrony could be made into a good movie because, it, you know, there's a plot. Like, things happen. And the different factions have very, very clearly filled in ideologies, and so you can set up a conflict there. I'd forgotten that there was going to be a Terraforming Mars movie. Who knows? It wasn't, what was, there was another game that was very much time-traveling, and they could make a very interesting science fiction-type 
movie. It was a was it you that called or just killed me or that time you killed that me. That time you killed me. Like some sort of like double think multiple time traveling murder mystery sure. thing would be sure. very interesting. I mean that isn't that isn't the game that time you killed me. It's a positional oh, abstract no? so it'd be oh, difficult okay. to, to 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 do it there. But yes. I've not yet played it. I just thought that that's what the that's what the the gist of it is. Yeah, that's what the right. theme is, but okay. it's an attempt to theme like Eventually, you get to the part where you're controlling elephants with remote controls. Oh. The approach to theme is very loosely implemented. Gotcha. <laughs> so I saw on game shelves, and it shamed me deeply, Walker. I had been meaning to talk about this when it first came available, and I neglected. This is a very, very shameful moment here for so very number games. Regicide Second Edition, the one with bards, is now on game shelves with a uh, better box, so you can leave Regicide in your bag or purse at all times, as I do. Of course, my box is now falling apart, so maybe I should get that uh, get the second edition for no other reason than now. This one has bards. The creators explained that the the diamond suit, which is in first edition, is represented by wizards, is more is better expressed through bards, and so now the diamonds are bards instead of wizards. So you can get have a first edition copy, you can have a second edition. You need to have the zeroth edition copy, which is uh, any old deck of cards. <laughs> That's also true. And on top of that, Regicide is a brilliant, brilliant game. So Regicide second edition. Finally for me, on its fourth edition now on Kickstarter is Heavy Gear, the role-playing game. Normally we don't talk much about role-playing games here, but this has full integration with the Heavy Gear tabletop wargaming system, which is called Heavy Gear Blitz. And I've been interested in the Heavy Gear universe ever since its first edition in the 90s. This is a company from Montreal, so there's a bit of a local hook named DreamPod9. I've never met any of the people at, at The Pod, as people apparently in the know called it back then. I remember, cool kids. I remember someone at McGill, who was, who was a member of the gaming club that I never joined, talking about, oh yeah, I'm friendly with the guys at The Pod. It's like, all right, good to know. This was before podcasting, actually, so now The Pod means something else. At any rate... <laughs> I'm a big fan of Heavy Gear. Heavy Gear's got a lot of interesting speculative fiction stuff. One thing in particular that I'd forgotten about was that it had a very aggressively polyethnic, polycultural approach to tolerance even back in the 90s, which a lot of speculative fiction has had, but some speculative fiction doesn't. I remember, for example, that the faction of uh, somewhat intolerant re religious zealots nonetheless approved of same-sex marriage, and same-sex marriage was just a normal thing. Again, early 90s, not very common. And on top of that, there are mechs. Yeah. I don't know how about the mechs feel about same-sex marriage. I'm Presumably, with, they're indifferent. Because like I said, I'm getting some paints, and I've... I've, I also was very much heavy into the original Heavy Gear, and I loved how they went down into scale. They're yes. Nice, very interesting, cool-looking mini-mechs. So yes. maybe that would be my first project. I do have a full army of Heavy Gear Blitz, and I do have some spare Heavy Gear. I've got, actually, uh, a northern and a southern army unassembled that you'd be welcome to have. I played New Cole. I My approach to tabletop wargaming, I've said this before on Patreon bonus episodes, if there is a faction that names its units after Napoleonic troop types, that is the faction I take. That's yours. So Pan-Oceania, their default line troop was called a Fusilier, so I took them. And <laughs> they had Dragoons and others, so there you go. And in Heavy Gear, that is New Cole. They have Chasseurs, and they have Fusilier, and they've got a whole bunch of other things, so, you know, there we go. Easy choice. And that is the news. And why it does not matter. Now, on to our main review, which is Revive. Revive is a one-to-four player, medium-heavy Euro game designed by Helga Meissner, Isla Svensson, Anna Vermlund, and Christian Amundsen Ustby. Christian Amundsen Ustby and Isla Svensson have co-designed a number of games that we've enjoyed here on Swag, specifically 2016's Santa Monica, 2019's The Magnificent, and especially 2020's Capital Lux 2. 
This list of four designers is also responsible for 2018's Rebel Knox, which is a dynamic partnership trick-taking game set in the same universe as Capital X2. But on top of that, those are the that's the pretty much the only other design credit for Helga Meissner and Anna Vermland. But Svensson and Ostby have co-designed tons of things together, and Usby is also responsible for Escape from the Cursed Temple, the real-time dice-rolling game, which is good for a laugh. Walker, why don't you give us an unhelpful summary about what one does in Revive? Well, I think the rule book does a good, pretty good job. Sums up the whole the whole theme in one sentence. <laughs> This whole sort of post-apocalyptic bringing the world back. It says, each player will lead a tribe trying to rebuild the world according to their own ideals. Period. (laughs) My ideal is that I want the most victory points. So in Revive, it gives you that Marco Polo feel. You are checking your secret card. You are looking at the major, the large locations and your asymmetric power and you and you, you have to come up with a plan in order to connect all of these dots to get the major artifact tiles because not only will they get you points, but the more you get, the more points you will deny your opponents. Yeah, the, key, the, the clock of the game, I'm going to be returning back to these artifact tiles several times, actually. But the clock of Revive is the artifact tiles. The artifact tiles key into your endgame scoring, and they're also just a Benny to various other milestones. And the overall tempo of Revive can be a little bit disarming, especially for new players. Although overall, I would assert that Revive is very new player friendly because it can be the kind of thing where for a while, no one's getting any artifacts and suddenly they just start disappearing like crazy (laughs) because it's about getting to various thresholds and not unlike victory conditions in Tribune, you can be at zero, 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 three, four, five. And then the game's over and you're wondering what happened. And that's not necessarily a slight, it's just, as you say, if you want to be competitive in Revive, you do have to have your eyes on the prize and have some kind of overarching notion, because it can be relatively easy and nonetheless enjoyable just to go along with the flow and do whatever's cheaply available immediately at arm's length. That flexibility, though, that dynamism between, well, if you know what you're doing, you really have to plan ahead, versus you can be flexible if you want to, is only a problem, that that gulf is only a problem if you care about blowouts, which sometimes you seem to do. It's true. Let's let's just keep concentrating on these uh, major artifacts. Let's. So... On your secret card, you have three sort of objectives, and everyone's got different ones, and each one of these three objectives corresponds to a different color of artifact. And like you said, you get them in all sorts of different ways. and Usually as a bonus for doing something else. And I'm wondering if you almost have to sort of lean towards two, and then you get to see what other artifacts people are trying to get to, or maybe do a light smattering of all three. Because if you start focusing on just one and someone else also focuses on that same color, won't be the same objective, but they'll be all going for the same purple ones, then, you know, you might be making it a lot easier for that third or fourth player. It depends on how much you expect your points to be coming from those corner objective tiles of which you spoke, which we'll talk about later. But I I think that if you're not going to be heavily invested on getting to multiple corners of the map, I think you have to focus on at least two different kinds of artifacts for exactly the reasons that you say. If for no other reason, then you yourself will exhaust the supply of one of them sooner or later, even if no other players care about it. And I'm wondering if there there is a way to be competitive without getting any of the artifacts. Ooh. Not, I'm, I'm sure you'll get I'm sure you'll get one or two. Well you get you get as I say, you just get them by accident. Like you what do. else what else are you doing to get your points without setting yourself up to get more artifacts? Advance up the victory track, you'll get 
an artifact. Advance along the achievement track, you'll get an artifact. Advance along the three colored tracks, you'll get artifacts that way too. So advance along the technology track, you'll get artifacts. I mean, <laughs> as I say, it's they're mostly just benefits for having maxed something else out. It's true. But there, sometimes we do get into a scenario where if one person gets a little bit further ahead, they're hitting those thresholds just slightly before other players. Yes. So they, they tend to get more of the artifacts than other players. Yeah, it is definitely the case when it comes to Revive that more skilled players, more experienced players will completely outclass other players at the table. I'm kind of okay with that since it's not a crushingly frustrating experience. Again, contrast this, for example, to most other splatter games. In Food Chain Magnet, in Antiquity, in Indonesia, if you're a step behind all your opponents, you get nothing done. <laughs> it's just the case that you cannot get anything off the ground. In Revive, you can still go and do all the key yeah, things of yeah, the game. Yeah, no, nothing is limiting you by... by uh not getting the points by not right. getting those artifacts. You're still playing the game, which is v- extremely fun and you're not being set for any limits. Yeah. So- I, every time I explain the game, I'm surprised again at how comparatively straightforward it is. Cause this is absolutely a medium heavyweight Euro game where some of your turns are very combinatoric and have lots of little combo nesting things. I do this, which triggers this other thing, this other thing. How many actions have you taken? Uh, zero so far, <laughs> but at the end of the day, it's like you take two actions of your turn or you pass. Most of the time, when you're playing actions, you're playing a card or you're spending one of the three resources and you spend them in three different ways. That's it. I mean, that's more or less it. And all the stuff on top of that, you get to explore and get to be exposed to as Revive evolves in front of you. And I think that's great. It is, I, I agree. When I was, let's talk about some of those actions, though. Like you said. Can we turn back to the artifacts, though, just briefly? I just oh, want to say oh, one thing sure. about the artifacts. So Revive has a, has a campaign system. All right? And the rulebook to revive, as you say, has one line of text to explain what's going on. There was this ice age after nuclear war, humanity's emerging from, emerging from a chasm to... to oh, I to, missed that. Does it actually say that somewhere? Uh, well, in the campaign system. Oh, in the campaign system. Okay. The campaign system is largely a vehicle to do two things. Number one, introduce the flavor text that another game would have put in the rulebook. And number two, to introduce things that, qu- quite frankly, could have been a standalone small box expansion. It introduces new powers to each of the factions that rely on new tokens. It introduces more tokens into the core system, and it introduces new cards into the game. All these could have, like, honestly, Revive could have been pared down on all that stuff, could have hived off into a separate uh, standalone expansion. I don't think anyone would have complained about the amount of content in either. So there's a lot of content in the box. But there's one thing in which I was crushingly disappointed. Because you play your first game of Revive, and you're explaining everything, and like, okay, well, your endgame points primarily come from these artifacts. And like, these look like crystal skulls. They do look like crystal skulls. To which the answer is, what are they? It's like, I don't know. I hope the campaign will tell us. Spoiler alert. It's an an artifact. It's an artifact. Spoiler alert. The campaign in the early bit of the campaign references the fact that some of the people find these artifacts really creepy and mysterious. And I thought, ooh, great. No. The campaign is just a way to slowly drip in the base level of flavor text. Nothing happens. Nothing evolves. There's no development. There's no plot. There's no, it just It's a way to slowly introduce expansion material, and that is it. Now, on that note... I want to know what the Crystal Skulls are about, Walker. True. I also want to know why all of the progress markers are of a neutral color. So I want to know your opinion. We can sort of, like, guess. Do you think there's going to be campaign elements that are going to manipulate those progress markers, and that's why they didn't make them player color specific i've i've seen the entire campaign walker now oh I, I assume it was just a way to simplify manufacturing all right then i do know that there is going to be another expansion tentatively slated to be published this year 
conceivably other things might happen then. I want them to explain what's going on with these creepy crystal skulls, Walker. Like, in, never in the whole campaign do they talk about the skulls again? No, it's mentioned once early on that the super mysterious and creepy, and then it never comes up again. <laughs> All right. One of the actions that you get to do on your turn is play a card. And on your player board, among other things, are these four beginning slots where you get to slide these cards in. Now, And the slots have slots as well. They do. Now, there's two on the top and there's two on the bottom. And the cards have symbols on the top or bottom. So depending on how you slide them in, they're going to give you different abilities or resources. Yes, and that is the fundamental way that resources enter the system. You have these cards and you just slot them in. And right away, you have little tiny bits of engine building because you can get new cards. It's not quite like deck building. You can make the slots better so that the slots trigger off of various colored cards to give you more resources, which is kind of like tableau building, but not really. And you also have this idea of cycling through your your quote-unquote deck of cards. There's some abilities that let you cycle more quickly. There's some things that your opponents can do that can cause them to cycle more quickly, which is kind of like some tempo manipulation, but not really. And I think that that sort of element is going to highlight what my opinion is on almost all the mechanisms of Revive, which is to say there's not a whole lot in anything, and there's not an overwhelming amount of things but you end up in a state where there's a lot of satisfying combinations and decisions to be made, which I think is a pretty good place to be. Like, nothing's especially flavorful. No one thing is especially cool. Like, the the card slotting is arguably the most innovative part of Revive, but it's not especially innovative. But that's okay. It comes together in a delightful package that is satisfying for repeat plays, but also uh, somewhat approachable and accessible for new players. And that's great. Yeah, but that not only the card slots interesting but it sort of all goes into the same thing because it is sort of a like you said you get resources there but there's sort of a resource management because you have a limit to how many resources you yep. can have and and in some cases that does matter so you have to sort of you don't want to waste resources mark certainly not that's madness so you have to like sort of manipulate your turn in a way that you're not wasting resources there's like you said there's these uh like sort of like memory chips you're going to slot into the to the card slots which give you more stuff and they have a, the first the first uh sort of slot i don't think you have to put them in order but there's a slot that has a check mark that will give you the the resources from that that microchip immediately. So you can sort of work that into your turn as well. That, okay, I need some food. Well, if I take this action first, it'll get me a token that will get me a food, which will let me do something else. Stuff like that. And the cards that you play are at the moment the only way that you can activate your tribe ability. Because not only do you have this player board that's the same as every other player, but you have this unique sort of faction tribe board that does all sorts of fancy things. And by playing... You know, the star symbol, it lets you do this funky thing that nobody else can do. <laughs> it's true. And you're also incentivized to do so whenever you activate a tribe ability or whenever you advance to certain thresholds on the three tracks. This, by the way, Revive, I think, has my preferred implementation of tracks that I've seen in a long, long time. You get to move a disc off uh, off your board and onto the development track, which is a different kind of track. There are a fair number of tracks, I admit. And that is one of the ways that you get more points. It's a significant source of in-game points. It's also, at various times in the game, will give you more energy to power your machines and perhaps, as I said, more crystal skulls. So the next, the next action is kind of only weird, <laughs> only weird in the fact that... Weird how, Walker? I'm, I don't understand why it was made part of the campaign, right? There's this switch. Sure. There's this switch 
uh, action. And it's a physical switch on your player board. You slide the token, and it's like a little. It's fun. It's like a. It's 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 fun. It's a tiny, tiny. But in the, in the rule factor. book, it says you know flick your switch and get one resource. Yes. Or the very first step of the campaign. Spoilers. Yeah. You get to uh, use the top of somebody else's card. I really feel as though that could have been in the, the initial <laughs> rules. It's really not that much of of a leap of... Well, of, that highlights the parsimony of the campaign system, right? Uh, yes. They just wanted to dole out these elements in a very slow-measured way. I think the Switch system is something they could have they should have included just in the base game stock. I don't think that should have been hived off to a potential expansion. Exactly. All right, so let's go on what you, what you, have, what you wanted to talk about are the tracks. So... The other three actions that you can take are all about the the other main board, I guess you could say. Yes. It's all about exploring it, populating it, and building buildings on it. And it has a, a main thing that goes through all these three actions is a range. So there's the central center of the board where everyone starts. That's where you're taking range from first. And then you're moving out from there and everything else you can go adjacent. And if you want to go any further than adjacent, then you have to start spending food. Lots of medium heavy Euro games have a central board or a shared space as kind of an afterthought. And despite the fact that you spend a lot of time in Revive focused on your own board and your own tracks and using your own machines, I do really like how the grab for real estate is very, very consequential in Revive. It's very satisfying, and knowing where and when to put out your things is of great consequence. And so, ultimately, it's not one of those things where the giant player board is just an an afterthought, a secondary thing worth some rounding error points at the end of the game. It's really of of central importance, and I appreciate that. So, two of the things that you're going to be putting out are buildings, small or large. And when you put them out, there's all this symbology on the map. And... You can only build on sand hexes, and then surrounding that sand hexes, will be there'll be water and some sort of symbols that will move you up the tracks. Yeah, symbol, Put, a symbol for each track. They're basically colors, green, yellow, and gray. Correct. Putting out a small building will let you uh, trigger these once. If you put a large building, that you can trigger them all twice. Now, if some of the tiles aren't explored, then once they are explored and flipped over, then they will give you the symbols that are adjacent to any houses or large houses that they're next to. And that is one of the key ways to go up the tracks, not the only way, but one of the key ways. And these tracks are kind of this network of intersecting lines on your player board. And as you move your piece, you start unlocking more stuff, mostly machines. Machines are are powered by energy, which you start with one, but you get more over the course of the game. They don't constitute an action, and they're really one of the ways where your turns can sort of spiral into awesomeness. And, you know, it's not one of those cases where you're waiting forever to finish their turn, but turns do get a lot more complicated over the course of the game, precisely because you're getting more and more machines. You unlock a slot, you get to pick a machine from a from a, a draft display, slot it into your satisfying two-layer player board, and then activate it on some future turn, or even that turn itself. Some things, very interestingly, I said they were intersecting. Well, some spots are just get to the second level of green and the spot opens. Some of them are, well, you have to be at four at green, but at least nine of yellow for this to open up. And so you really have to start diversifying as well as focusing. I just like how the tracks work. It's very straightforward and simple. And again, it puts emphasis on the central player board. Yeah. And there's some standard machines that you get. Everyone gets automatically. There's the first thing you, you unlock. And when you unlock these things, you're pulling off these track advancement 
discs and they start to go up your victory point track. So at the end of the game, you're going to get more victory points depending on how many of these advancement tokens you've taken off. Not only that, there are bonus things you are, you will get as that goes up the track, more energy to, to power these machines, artifacts, stuff like that. I thought that was a nice touch. It reminded me a little bit of those elements of cryo or dwellings of Eldervale that we really like. Or at least I really like just being a little bit of building your own engine. Not so much wild special powers. That's more your own unique player faction ability, but more just, well, I have an engine that lets me settle more cheaply, or I have an engine that allows me to generate crystals a little bit faster or what have you. And or the ability to to draft machines that key into your endgame scoring conditions or this, that, and the other. And I just find that very, very appealing. And again, as Revive goes on, it gets more complicated and in-depth as it goes, so you get to have your legs under you before the truly wild combinations start opening up. So more on the popula- the special abilities that you were just talking about. As you're exploring these tiles, which is which will get you lots of, sometimes lots of victory points, because the more expensive ones get you lots, or you can, and they get you more cards. That's yeah, generally thing. speaking, when you explore, you always get one card, and they range from spend two resources and get a point, all the way up to f- spend five resources and get five points. So sometimes when you flip over these tiles, they help cities, and this is what will allow you to populate. And I thought that was a very interesting interesting way to limit how quickly you can sort of ramp up your special abilities. Because yeah. there's not very many of these cities out there. And the land rush is real. The land rush is real. And the more people that get out there, the more expensive it is for you to join them. So it sort of limits how fast you get your special abilities because the population tokens come off your board, which unlocks those abilities. And one of the special abilities is get a new card slot. So like I said, there's two at the top and... Two at the bottom, there is also a secret one, Mark, on the side. And you get to... It's not really secret, now, is it? It's right there on the board. It is. Everyone asks about but it when it they first get it. it makes it sound more special if really? you say it's secret. We're, we're, we're hype agents now? Yeah. Okay. And you get to slide the card in whatever... Put a little velvet rope in front of the right. side slot? You get to put... You get to slide it in whichever way you like. You which which orientation that you want, which is very... I don't see your name on the free. list, Walker. I don't think you get to use the slot, Walker. Damn it. There are also water spaces out there, Mark. Yeah, you found them consistently bedeviling. Well, it's because everything else was so straightforward. (laughs) Sure. It's a little bit asymmetric in that the way they get triggered is slightly different from other elements in the map. I will grant you that. So they can usually get you victory points or some other more powerful Benny, I think, than the other spaces that are on the board. But they only trigger the one time, the first time that you place a building, once for every player, one time. And then on the corners of the map, there are the large locations, which will be end-game victory points, like how many tiles you've, you know, discovered or how many special abilities you unlocked. How many large buildings you built. There's some for the tracks. There's some for energy you've acquired. There's a fair number, to be frank. And again... This is where you can separate the strong revive players from the less experienced revive players because the strong revive players will look at the corners and say, all right, I'm going to try to build towards that corner and I'm going to make it my goal to get there. And along the way, I will acquire the things that the points give me benefits for. Because it's very easy to get yourself in a position where if you're not paying attention, if you don't pay attention to your secret crystal card and you don't pay attention to the corners, like, oh, I got there. It gives me two points per thing I don't have. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> or, or you're just too busy assimilating the 50 other oh, yeah. know, things, you said, okay, well, I'm just going to ignore those for the first game and, yep. and then realize, oh, that's what they do and then not have enough time to get Yeah, but there. again, I, I, I keep emphasizing this because I think it's one of Revive's strengths. It really is worthy of repeat plays in a way that lots of other Euro games aren't. It's 
easier to get into than a lot of other Euro games are. And it's one of those games where it's enjoyable to be crushed. And while you're being crushed, you're still getting to do fun things. And sometimes you don't get those sense of competition. Like, there are lots of Euro games where everything is super, super balanced. Like, one thing we didn't mention when talking about Wizards of the Grimoire is, so far, all our games have been super, super close. Either that's because we're about the same quality of, of player, which is possible, or it's because it might be one of those games that may be a little bit too fine-tuned. You know those games where somebody has played seven times before, and they're playing against noobs, and the final scores are 18, 18, 19, 20? You feel a little bit of whisper in the back of your head wondering if you've just been on more of an amusement park ride, which is fine. I love amusement park rides. But then there are splatter games where typically it's like, well, I've got a billion points. Do you get to sell anything? No, nobody wants to buy my lemonade. Okay. Yeah, so you have negative five. Yeah. Oh, so sorry. Now you have to fire all your employees because you can't feed to pay them. Good job, Jimmy. No, but Revive is an excellent balance where, yes... The, the end track score will, you, you might get lapped, that's fine, but you still got to do your stuff, which is nice. So you've done your actions, Mark. You fill up your boards, like you reset everything. You clear your slots, you flick your switch back, you move up a hibernate track, which gets you some sort of benefit. Then hibernate is done. Because we sort of talked about the card movement, but we, we haven't really, because I really think it is an interesting part. You start the game with six cards, three are active, Three are sort of in your dead pile. When well, you, they're sleeping. Sleeping. When you hibernate, you you move all your sleeping cards to your active area, and then all the cards that you've used go into your sleeping area. So it's this interesting sort of rotation of cards that, you know, and then with a lot of abilities in order to pull cards out and get them into your sleeping area so you will have them for the next turn. There are crystals that are wild resources. There are crates that will sort of also give you more resources as the game go. There's a sort of kick in the teeth at the end of the game where if all of the crystal skulls are gone, you get a token that, gets, <laughs> that will give you two victory points. Oh, you didn't get you didn't get a you didn't get an artifact that would get you fifteen points. Well, here's two instead. Fifteen is an exaggeration. If you're getting fifteen points from a crystal skull, you don't care that you're getting the two point consolation. You've already won. <laughs> The rulebook does this fantastic thing where it actually shows you the front and the backs of the cards. I really wish every rulebook would do this. Oh, yeah. It's getting really tiresome where they show you the setup information and it's like, well, set out the Blurdy Blurg cards. It's like, well, which which is the Blurdy Blurg deck? I don't know. Yeah, you have 15 decks. Which one's that? Yeah. And it's unfortunate that that uh, that there's no real theme. Like, even as you're playing, you're not really doing anything. You're not, you know, reviving machines. You know, you are sort of getting machines going, but what machines? It's not saying you're getting the oxygen <laughs> going again. You're not really doing anything. And then they have these... You're expanding. And then I they mean, have these spots at the top of the board where you put the artifacts, like... And it just looks weird there. <laughs> just I, I wasn't bothered by the... Th- like, for a Euro, I think it's got enough theme. You start you start off in this central chasm thing and you do spread out and you explore the land and you make settlements and you uh, you erect buildings and you do all these other things. Yeah, the machines are are super generic and yes, the settlements are super generic, but you know there's this snow-covered wasteland and you eventually fight back and make something resembling a civilization. It's enough for me. And like I said, there's all these different tribe boards even more than than four, like which is the player count, so lots to choose from and they have two sides. I would play Revive anytime. Really enjoy it. Big fan of Revive. I had high expectations given the designers. We've really liked a lot of their past output. 
and I am very pleased. I was a little bit disappointed, as I said, with the overall campaign system. I feel like it just had a campaign system, so it could say that it had a campaign because that's what the market wants. But I am glad that they didn't hive it off into expansion, which they very well could have because there's a lot of content in Revive. I think it's got a great balance of challenge and approachability, and I really enjoy watching my turns grow and my options expand. I think it's done a, a wonderful job of marrying mostly familiar Euro concepts into a highly, highly playable Euro game. Well, that's going to do it for this week. Thank you very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you would like to get in touch with us, you can find all of our contact information at sowronggames.com slash contact. It's a wonderful website, one of my favorites. Not a lot of cat pictures there, but maybe we can get to work on that. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we possibly can. Thanks again for spending some time with us. We hope to see you again soon. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working... The HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.